So as we said, today's reading is Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, see, that you fled? Why Jordan did you turn back? Why mountains did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. That's God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the assistant minister, if we haven't met. And it's my privilege to be taking us through Psalm 114 tonight. So um, if you've got your Bibles, keep them open. We're going to pray and let's look at it together. Father God, we pray as ever. Would you, would you open our minds? Would you give us understanding? But would truth not stay there? Would truth sink into our hearts and change the way we feel, the way we think, and the way we live? Amen. Uh, so my dad had a very interesting career. He was privileged to be an aeronautical engineer uh, during the exciting times just after the war, development of jet engines and all that sort of thing. And pretty much the first job he had was to help work out whether they should allow big supersonic jets, like what would become Concorde, to fly over built-up areas like London. And the, the politicians just didn't know. You know. I mean, is the sonic boom going to make buildings shake apart? Who knows? And they had a, a team of boffins, much cleverer than my dad was, who'd worked out all the equations, and they gave them the exact decibel numbers, and they could tell you how many fractions of an inch a standard household window would vibrate when the sonic boom went past. But the problem for the politicians making the decisions was that the, those, those figures just didn't, they just didn't really mean much to them. I mean, it, it just... It didn't help them know what would it actually feel like to have Concorde pass overhead. So Dad's team were told to come up with some kind of demonstration that would help the politicians really experience what it's like. So they took uh, the, the government ministers and all the industry bigwigs down to a military base and had them uh, in a Nissan hut. And then they had a demolitions expert with two massive piles of dynamite uh, at a precise distance away, precisely calculated amount of dynamite that they let off in two controlled explosions. I'm guessing depending on exactly which government ministers were there, there might have been a temptation to move the explosives a little bit closer and have a little bit more, but they, uh, they, were, they were professional. And uh, they set off these two deafening explosions and it's pretty quickly clear you couldn't have supersonic planes flying over London. Now, the, the explosions were not a real Concorde flying overhead, hadn't even been built at that point. But they enabled the politicians to get some sense of, okay, this is kind of what it would be like. Okay, why am I telling you that? Uh, well, if you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, I think we can be a whole lot like those politicians in the way that we understand our salvation. Because I can't see my sin. It doesn't appear as blotches on my skin. I can't see the wrath of God that I ought to face. And, and when I became a Christian, there wasn't any visible change. And so 
it just feels like, well, it's hard to work out. I've got the equations. What the New Testament tells me about this is, this is what sin does and this is how we get saved. But what does it actually mean? And the Exodus, that event at the start of Israel's history, is kind of like God's explosion demonstration. It's the physical model of the spiritual realities. It helps us understand our salvation in concrete categories that we can feel and sense and get our heads around. And Psalm 114 is all about the Exodus. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, at the beginning of the the history of God's people, they're slaves in Egypt, and God rescues them, as we'll see in the psalm, with his mighty power. Now, here's why all of this matters. Here's the cash value. Because we can't see it, the danger is that if you're a Christian, you feel a bit just, meh, no big deal about salvation. We sing about it on Sunday. I know I should be excited by it, but I just, if I'm honest, it just doesn't feel like much of a big deal. You know, there was this kind of little problem of sin and and Jesus did this thing on the cross and, and now I'm forgiven and, okay, great. And the danger is that we end up with this very small view of salvation and this very small view of God because it really wasn't such a big deal to save me. And therefore we lack thankfulness for what Jesus actually did on the cross. And we lack confidence that God is big enough to get us through life and that he uses his power to help his people. And as we look at Psalm 114, we're going to be reminded that salvation involves the awesome power of God. And it reassures us that God uses his power to rescue you and that he can protect and provide for you throughout this life as we trust him all the way home. Now, those are key lessons. They're key lessons whether you're looking into the whole Christian thing, working out whether you want to put your trust in Jesus or or whether you call yourself a Christian and like all of us, you have your times when you just are not sure you can keep going. Well, we're going to work our way through the psalm. Firstly, foreigners in Egypt to citizens of God. That's the first thing. Verses 1 to 2. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Psalm 113, which we saw last week, it describes God as the one who calls people from east and from west and who raises up the lowly. And that theory is now cashed out in the historical realities recorded in Psalm 114. Now, Israel, Jacob, Judah, those are just different terms referring to the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Old Testament people of God. Now, they'd gone to Egypt 400 years before the events recorded here through Joseph, but they have never been at home there. And do you see verse 1? They came out from a people of foreign tongue. Egypt remained a foreign country to them. They didn't allow the culture of Egypt to mold them. They remain distinct, not assimilated as God's people. What happens when you do that? Well, as so often, the Egyptians responded to those who were different with suspicion and then with hostility. You see it all the time. It's happening in Myanmar to Rohingya Muslims. It's happening to Christians in India and Pakistan. It's happened to the Israelites in ancient Egypt. The majority culture oppressed them enslaved them, and eventually, we read in the Bible, began a campaign of genocide to wipe them out. But God had promised hundreds of years beforehand to the forefathers 
of Israel, to a man named Abraham, that he would protect and he would bless and he would flourish Abraham's descendants. And now God cashes out that promise and he rescues his people from slavery. You'll see there's a, there's a deliberate contrast in these verses. It's from people living, um, from living as, uh, with people of a foreign tongue to becoming God's sanctuary. They went from outsiders in Egypt to at home with God. Now at this point, I have to admit that I got halfway through uh, writing this talk before I realized I'd slightly misread what the psalm says at this point. I assume the, the contrast here was they were living in Egypt, but not at home. And then they went to living at home with God, which is true. God welcomes them into his family. But while it's true, it's not actually what is said here. It's actually much more stunning than that. It's not that they were invited to dwell with God, but that God came to dwell with them. The almighty God made his home with this bedraggled, homeless nation of slaves. In Exodus 29, 46, God says, They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God had them build a, a tabernacle, a temple, so that symbolically they could see God had come to live right in the midst of them. So that they would be at home with him. But more stunningly, he would be at home with them. It's, a, it's still royal garden party season. Anybody here been to a royal garden party? A few have. I haven't. Hint, hint, your majesty, if you're watching. Love an, love an invitation. The, um, it'd be a, it's quite an honor, as I understand it, to be invited to a royal garden party. But somehow it would be even more of an honor if the queen were to, to phone up and ask if she could come to visit you, have a barbecue at your house come to stay for a few days. You know, to be invited to her palace is a privilege, but it's one you have to dress up for. There's a, there's a strict dress code. Um, the, uh, I, I love the way it's described. There, there are certain technical things, and then it says overall, smart restraint. I mean, what does that even mean? But smart restraint. I think we should, we should have that for church this autumn as our, our dress code. Smart restraint. There we go. But, but for her to come to you is, is for her to say, you're fine as you are. You're acceptable just the way you are. You don't need to dress up. You don't need to come on my terms. I want to come to you as you are. And that's what God does here. Now, as I said, the, the Exodus, we're told later in the Bible, what happened back then is a model, a picture, a sign of what God would do in reality through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And so these first two verses, they remind us of a wonderful truth. The truth that if you trust in Jesus, then for God, your salvation was just a means to an end. And that's actually good news. Your salvation, it was just a means to an end. Your, your forgiveness, I mean, having the debt of your sin completely wiped clean. Being redeemed, having that slavery to sinful desires broken. The prison doors opened being justified, having your guilt taken away and instead being given a status as perfect and righteous in God's eyes. Cleansed, having all the filth of your sinful actions and desires just washed away. Amazing, spectacular blessings. But actually, they're just a means to an end. <laughs> they're they're, they're just, just getting you ready for the real thing. The end. The purpose, 
is a return to Eden. See, human history began with our ancestors living in a paradise garden with God, walking and talking with him in fearless, joyful intimacy. We ruined that when we rebelled against God and lost it. But God promised he would restore what we had ruined. And in John's vision, at the end of the Bible in Revelation, that promise is fulfilled as he looks to the new creation coming in the future. And he declares, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. And now, as we wait for that day, if we put our trust in Jesus today, well, we get a step up from what the Exodus delivered, God dwelling symbolically in the building of a temple. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God comes to live really and truly by his spirit in each one of us. In other words, when you put your trust in Jesus, God looks at you and says, you're a worthy home for me. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? Well, secondly, we learn that there's unnatural behavior from the natural world at the Exodus. So the next two verses, they explain how God achieved this great rescue so his people could be with him. Verse 3, the sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Now these days, if a movie wants big special effects, it just turns to the... To, the guys in, with computers, CGI, does it all. But back in the, in the golden heyday of cinema, there was no way around it. So in 1959, when uh, Ben-Hur was created, the proper Ben-Hur, the original one, the, the good one, they, when, they, when they created that the chariot race scene, which if you haven't seen, you can, you, know, you can cheat these days. Just watch that bit on YouTube without having to go through the whole film. But anyway, um, I digress. Uh, the, uh, the chariot race scene is an amazing feat. It required a thousand laborers spending 12 months digging the arena out of a hill. They brought in 40,000 tons of white sand from Mexico to fill it. 15,000 extras were employed, along with 18 chariots, 78 horses, and almost 100 stuntmen. The director spent a quarter of his entire budget on that one scene, but it is seriously worth it. When you turn to the Exodus, God really blew the budget, and there was no CGI. He turns a river, the River Nile, into blood. Rains down hailstones like cricket balls. A pillar of fire leads the people out. At midday, it becomes pitch black throughout Egypt. There are plagues of frogs and locusts, all those amazing convulsions in the natural world leading up to the moment when the children of Israel would stand before the Red Sea and the water would split and they would walk on dry land between two walls of water, safety and freedom on the other side. And 40 years later, as they finish their wilderness wanderings and prepare to enter the, the promised land, they arrive at the Jordan River in full-on spring flood mode. And the raging river just stops flowing. And they walk across on dry land again. Now, watery chaos in the Old Testament of the Bible is a picture of death and disorder and decreation. 
The ordered creation is described as being drawn out of the watery chaos right at the start, the primeval waters. And the terrible judgment of human sin in the flood is an act of decreation, water washing away life on earth. And so to, to hear that waters stand between them and safety is a way of saying destructive, decreative death stands between God's people and escape. And again at the end of the Exodus, it is destructive, watery death that stands between God's people and entry to the promised land. But both times, God commands and a creation obeys. And as if a tap is turned, the Jordan stops flowing. And the point is, when God wants to save his people, nothing stops him. Absolutely nothing can stop him. Red Sea, not a problem, just split it in two. Jordan River, in flood, just turn the taps off. The almighty God exercises his power to save his people. Now the whole creation we read here was convulsed and thrown apart by the events of the Exodus. And the climax, the heart of what was happening was as God gathered his people at Mount Sinai to receive his law, the covenant ceremony where they became his people. And as God descended in a cloud, the mountain trembled. As verse 4 puts it here, the mountain leaped like rams and the hills like lambs. A millennia and a half later, a millennium and a half later, as Jesus was nailed to a rough wooden cross on a hill outside Jerusalem, As God enacted the real salvation, the Exodus pointed towards, again, creation was convulsed. Darkness at midday. And Matthew 27.51, the eyewitness records that the moment Jesus died, the very ground shook with a mighty earthquake. The almighty God exercising his power to save his people. And again, the earth trembles. I'm sure you heard a few weeks ago at the start of Psalm 112 that these Psalms, 112 to 117, the Egyptian Hallel, they were sung by the Jewish people at the time of the Passover. That means they would have been the playlist in Jerusalem as Jesus walked towards the cross. And if you're Jesus, about to hand yourself over to be beaten, tortured, killed, and to bear all the wrath of God against sin, I guess you really need to be reminded that God has power to rescue those who trust in him. We too need to remember that. Because there are times when the weight of guilt and shame can feel utterly overwhelming as a Christian. There are times when, frankly, the sheer mediocrity of my love and obedience just crush me. There are times when sinful desire feels overpoweringly strong, we feel just utterly outmuscled by temptation. We know it's only a short matter of time before we give in. And we need to remember we have a mighty saviour. Not just a compassionate one, but a compassionate saviour who is also mighty. We have a God who makes the mountains tremble. He's able to help us. So look back to the Exodus and look up to God for help. Lastly, verses 5 to 8, the powerful presence of God. The final verses, they ask a not unreasonable question. How on earth do you explain all the weird, wild stuff that happened to the Exodus? Verse 5, why was it, see, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? 
The point is not that we live in a magical universe where paths just appear through seas and mountains start jumping. The Bible teaches we live in an ordered universe, a universe of regular predictable rules created by a God of order, when nature is governed by constants, observable laws. I mean, the, the modern scientific movement grew out of the Christian worldview of the West. The point is, if something happens that is incompatible with those scientific laws, there must have been some outside interference, I think it's called. Now, I used to um, walk the dog along by the river when we lived uh, in West London, and I remember the first time I saw the tide turn. Over the space of 20 minutes, you can watch this too if you're bored one afternoon or morning, uh, over the space of 20 minutes, the river went from flowing down that way to slowly stopping and then with increasing speed flowing the other way, upstream. Water's not meant to do that. Water goes downhill. But the water was flowing uphill. It's amazing, actually, when you think about it. Why does it happen? Well, because the moon's passing overhead. Duh. Um, you know, like, yeah, we know that. You know, when a lump of rock that size passes within 238,855 miles of us, it drags the water with it. That's what happens. What happens when the creator god of the universe stoops down to rescue his people and passes by close? Verse 7. Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. The earth trembled, the sea split, because something slightly bigger and more powerful than the moon had come down, God himself. They talk about people being movers and shakers. <laughs> it is literally true of Almighty God. Now, after all of that, the last verse seems like a bit of a prosaic little anticlimax after the cosmic thunder. Verse 8. Uh, let's start back at verse 7. Actually, tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool and the hard rock into springs of water. Hmm. But actually, one of the reasons so many Christians get to the point of feeling like, I just want to give up, is we've lost sight of the truth of this verse. We may be very clear on the gospel truth. Jesus died to save me. Uh, I no longer face God's judgment for sin. That's brilliant. Amen. We may be very clear that Jesus is coming back and it'll all be wonderful. He's going to transform the world and we'll live forever in paradise. Brilliant. The problem is the bit in between where we've got to live and it can be quite hard. In the Exodus, between the Red Sea on the way out of Egypt and crossing the River Jordan into the Promised Land came 40 years in the wilderness, a harsh, barren desert, a tough place where God's people could not survive without God's miraculous provision. There was nothing but red dust and hard rock. And yet, every day for 40 years, God's people woke up to find he'd provided food to eat and water to drink. He made rocks literally flow with water. A very different kind of water from verse 5. Not the churning, disordered waters of chaos, but the gently flowing waters of life. Like the waters that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. Like the waters that flow from the throne of heaven in Revelation 22. The water of life flowing from God. Verse 8 is a great reminder of a couple of things. Firstly, that 
this world is not the paradise God has promised us. We're not yet in the new creation. We still live in a fallen world that will often feel like hard rock under our feet. A place where people get sick, where loved ones die, where you get bullied at work, where relationships we thought would complete us fail us. And we'll give up quickly if we've swallowed the unbiblical expectation that all our dreams will come true in this world. Just as importantly, though, secondly, verse 8 reassures us God can and will provide everything you need as you journey through this world on the way to his paradise. Now, some of us, actually probably all of us at different times and for different reasons, wonder whether God really can provide what I need if I'm going to make it through this world. We wonder whether life is, is genuinely livable between the cross and the crown. We believe in Jesus, we trust in his death for our salvation. But the bit in between that and going home can feel very hard. Psalm 114 reassures us, our God can make rocks flow with water. He didn't turn the Sinai wilderness into paradise. But he did provide his people with what they needed as they journeyed through the wilderness. And 1 Corinthians 10.4 tells us Christ is the true rock from whom living water flows. And it is as we look to him, as we trust in him, as we follow him, that we will find all that we need for this life and beyond. Okay, now put the whole psalm together as we close. Put the whole psalm together. The earth shatters, the deserts flow with water because of the overwhelming presence of Almighty God come to rescue his people and provide for them. And that God is living in you, has come to dwell in you. So I have no idea what each one of you goes out of these doors to face, what you'll wake up to tomorrow morning. But I do know that if you trust in Jesus, this God, the God of Psalm 114, won't just be with you, he'll be in you tomorrow morning. The one who shook the mountains and split the seas to save his people, he's with you. He's in you. You don't need to fear anything. The one who made the deserts flow with water has promised to provide for you. What will you lack? Let's pray. Our Father God, what a wonderful picture we get here. We pray that, uh, that the words of this psalm, that the picture of the Exodus would, would fill out for us the technical understanding of, of sin and of justification, of redemption, of forgiveness. That we would see the wild, raw power of God in our salvation that we would be encouraged that this mighty God of the Exodus is our God, that he lives in us, that he loves us, and that he is for us. We pray that we would have confidence to serve you and to live for you tomorrow, knowing that this is the kind of God who is with us every moment of every day. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, we praise you. Amen.